What can change in a generation? 21 years ago, right now, our, our generation was changing. 21 years ago this morning, Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four airplanes along the East Coast. At 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 slammed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, and you remember where you were. 9.03 a.m., United Flight 175 slammed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. 9.37 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. And at 10.03 a.m., United Flight 93 crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. Nearly 3,000 people were killed. 25,000 people injured. And in a span of 90 minutes, our entire generation changed. Today, our generations are, are different than the ones before 9-11. Our current generations see the world as a march, much darker place than, than did previous generations. What studies show? The studies show that they know the possibility of evil happening on our soil, and they know that that is real. Current generations are much more concerned with security than my generation was, and privacy. And this generation is less comfortable taking risks. Much more cautious generation. My son was born two years after 9-11. He'll never know a pre-9-11 world. He will never know family members walking to the, to the gate of an airport as he, as he leaves to say goodbye. No more. He will never know anything but, but unpacking most of all of his possessions and taking off belt and shoes and everything just to get on a plane or to go into a government building or to go into a museum or go into a school or to a sporting event. Yes, a lot can change in just one generation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is standing on the edge of the promised land looking and talking to the people of God. Moses himself will not get to enter the land. The people will, but he will not because of his sin. So he's about to die, standing on Mount Nebo, and God told him, Moses, you're about to die, so address the people. And so he gives them one last farewell address, and it's recorded in the first 40 verses of Deuteronomy 4. And so we've been looking very carefully at these verses. Didn't want to just rush through all 40. I wanted us to spend time on each of them because what Moses said to that generation, we need to hear today desperately. And so we've been looking over the course of eight weeks at those 40 verses. And now this morning, we're to the last one. We're to the final five verses. The last thing Moses told them, and basically he said, your fathers and your grandfathers, they're, they're all buried out in the wilderness. Those are the ones that walked across the, the Red Sea whenever it parted. And, but they didn't believe the Lord. They started worshiping idols. They didn't trust him. They, they didn't obey him. And so 
as a result, they're buried out in the wilderness. But you, you new generation, you have a chance to get it right. So get it right. And here's the last thing he told them. Read with me verse 36. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. A number of years ago, Erwin Lutzer wrote a, a powerful book entitled When a Nation Forgets God. You'll see the cover of it here, Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany. And in this book, it's a fascinating book, Lutzer goes through seven similarities between Nazi Germany and America today, saying whenever you forget God, anything goes. And he said that's where we are. And this was the danger and the possibility God's people faced on the edge of the promised land. They had the danger of forgetting God. And so Moses told them, don't forget God and don't move on. By the way, just as a side note, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention in just a moment for future reference, there was a nation that developed in the Middle East later after this, uh, a nation that turned away from their God, a nation that became a horrible people, a nation, a nation that did godless acts, unspeakable acts, despicable, atrocious. They would take their babies as, and, and sacrifice them to the God of Molech and, and just the God would heat up and they would just place their babies there to sizzle as an offering to the Lord. They were abhorrent people. And I'm going to tell you about them a little more in just a moment. First, I want us to hear what Moses said to the people. Letter A on your outline, the last three, three things he told them. Letter A, first of all, he told them, your God is a loving God, verses 36 through 38. Your God is a loving God. Now, for 35 verses, Moses has given this next generation one warning after another. So in listening to the warnings, they would be tempted to think, well, our God is an angry God up there, always warning us and threatening us. And so Moses told them that is not the case. Your God has acted in your past and is acting in your future, is with you right now because he loves you so much. 
And so, for three verses, verse 36, verse 37, 38, you have layers of God's love. You have physical manifestations of God's love. In fact, Dr. Thomas Constable said about these three verses, he said, you have here, in verses 36, 37, 38, you have a mounting crescendo of God's love laid upon the people. So listen to what he told them. Moses said, your God loved you enough that he let you hear his voice from heaven. He let you hear it. Other nations didn't. The Egyptians, the Akkadians, other, other nations around there, they didn't hear their God speaking out of heaven. Their God can't speak. But your God did. He loved you enough. He let you hear his voice. And he loved you enough to discipline you. That's what he said. You see, discipline is a part of love. I didn't believe that as a child. I really didn't. My, I had two parents who believed in discipline. Let me say that again. I had two parents that really believed in discipline. <laughs> and I remember hearing many times, now this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I thought, yeah, right, I, I believe that. And I didn't believe them at all, but then I became a dad. They're right. It did hurt me worse than it hurt him. Because you see, behind discipline is love. Hebrews says that. Hebrews says, whatever child is not disciplined isn't loved. And so God showed his love to, the, to their fathers. And Moses said, God showed his love to you by disciplining you. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used there for, for discipline, there were two types of discipline. This is one that was a discipline to bring you to maturity. A discipline to make you better and make you stronger, make you different. He disciplines because he loves. And then he said, verse 36, and on earth he let you see his great fire and a voice that spoke out of the fire. That was Moses. Remember Moses talking about the burning bush. And he said, I loved you enough to speak to you. And then verse 37, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and great power. He was talking about the Exodus. Remember the Exodus where the waters parted and they got to go across on dry land. That was the central moment where God demonstrated how much he loves you. And folks, I, I know we have people all over our congregation this morning, those watching online as well. There are moments you can point to where God demonstrated to you how much he loves you. It might, it, it, might, it might be answering a prayer about health or about a job or about finances, but God demonstrated in a tangible way how much he loves you. But the ultimate demonstration is on the cross. And then he said something, verse 37, it's interesting. He said, and then he, he loved you enough to drive out nations before you, greater and mightier than you, to bring you into a land to give it to you as your inheritance. And I, I thought, wait a minute, hold on, time out, time out. He hasn't done that yet. 
He's going to. But he hasn't. He's talking to a people who has not entered the land yet. Joshua's going to lead them in, and they're going to drive out nations stronger than them, and the Canaanites will be dispelled, and all the other nations that are in there, they'll be dispelled, and Israel will have the land, but it hasn't happened yet. Can you imagine him standing there saying, and God's already driven out those nations before you? No, he hasn't, but he's speaking of a future event like it's already passed. God does the same for us. He has already given you victory, folks. You're not even there yet. And he's already given you victory all because he loves you. You have a loving father. You know, I was blessed whenever I was raised. I was blessed to have a loving father. My dad, um, I was close to my dad. He wasn't a perfect dad. Uh, but none of us are. But he's a good father. He's a loving father. I knew I was loved. I, I could go to bed at night feeling secure. I knew I was provided for. I knew I was taken care of. And I'm thankful to have had a loving father. And now I, I am a loving father. I love my son very much. I tell him all the time how much I love him. I am a loving father. But we're both blessed to have a loving Heavenly Father. And you are too. I don't know what your earthly father was like, but I can promise you this morning, your Heavenly Father loves you. Second thing he told him, letter B, verse 39. The commands for the land. All right, people. You're about to go into the land. As you go, know that your father loves you, but he's given you two commandments. Number one, know, therefore, today. And number two, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God and there's none other. Two commandments. Now, first of all, the first commandment, the word know. I've told you before, the word no in Hebrew is the word yada, Y-A-D-A, and it, it means to have a, an intimate relationship with someone. In, in Adam and Eve, I told you before, in Genesis, when it says they had sexual relations and this, they con she conceived and they had a son, the word yada, Adam knew Eve, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a term meaning intimate relationship. And so God is saying, know me intimately when you go into that land, know me intimately. And we know from the New Testament the only way to have an intimate relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, and as we repent of our sins and turn to Him, asking forgiveness and accepting what He did on the cross, His powerful resurrection, through Christ we can know God, and that begins the intimate relationship with our Father. So first command, next generation, know your God. Now, for those of you who uh, are educators, maybe you're a teacher, you're a superintendent or, or principal, or you've been in school, you're going to know the next phrase I say. The rest of you probably won't. But it's the phrase, Bloom's Taxonomy. 
Oh, yeah. All the teachers know exactly what Bloom's taxonomy. What is Bloom's taxonomy? Well, it's an it's a, it's a educational model developed by a professor by the name of Benjamin Bloom back in 1956. And he goes through levels of learning that students learn by. Here's a picture of it on the screen. Bloom's taxonomy. The lowest level is knowledge. That's where you just recall something. And then you have other objectives that you are to do. Comprehension and then application, analysis, synthesis, and then finally evaluation where you can judge between two items. And so he has this hierarchy. And so there will be workshops as I teach at Dallas Baptist University that the dean will have all of us uh, professors in there and will go through all the objectives of all of our classes trying to get as many levels of learning in the objectives for the students so they can learn more up the ladder. And I know high school students and, and uh, teachers and elementary teachers do the same. But did you notice the lowest level, the bottom, was knowledge? No. So if I tell a student, you need to know this, how do I know if they know it? I can't tell by looking at them. How do I know? So I have to build some exercises in there that lets me know they know. For example, they can list the items on a page or they can define a word, but I, I need to have something that lets me know that they know. Some of them this semester don't know. <laughs> so how does God determine if you know? He's the command to know. How does he know if you know? Obedience. Obedience. Folks, if you do what he says, he says, I will know that you know. If you keep my commandments and you keep my statutes. So he goes to the very bottom level of learning, the foundational level to say, when you get into the land, know me. But the second thing he said was, lay it to heart. Now, that's another way of us saying, take it to heart. When we say, take something to heart, that means you're really... It's not just in your head, but it's, it's in your heart as well. So God wanted the next generation of Israelites to not only know who he is, but to take to heart who he is. You can know something in your head without it saturating your heart. In fact, church members are a great example of that. You can come to church, you know the stories, you know what I'm about to say, you know what we're about to do, you can follow the order of service, you know what's coming next, you know where things are, but are you taking it to heart? So that's really the question. It's not what you know up here, it's what you lay to heart. So the question was, for them, are we going to do that? And the question for us is, are we taking to heart who God really is? 
Is this generation taking to heart who God really is? It's a great question for us. When they do this, they will know that God is the only God. I love the choir anthem, uh, Our God is God. Last year, our choir uh, produced, or rather they sang it. Uh, the producer, the writer of the musical uh, is a man by the name of Joseph Martin. You'll see the picture on the screen. That's Joseph on the left, and there is the piece of Our God is God. And Joseph was here last year uh, and led our choir in singing Our God is God. And then that night, we had, a, we had a concert with Joseph and other selections that he had written. And he told the story that night of how he wrote this, Our God is God. And he said that he and the guy that he was writing it with, they were, they'd gotten away and they were, they were thinking through how do, how do we, what kind of anthem can we state to let people know our God is God? And they were watching the, the movie Moses. And there's a line in it where Pharaoh said, the God of Israel, he was frustrated at, the, at, the, at the, all of the plagues, the God of Israel, he's the God who's God. And he said, don't tell me, how do we write an anthem of our God is God? Let's name it, our God is God. And so it's a powerful anthem. If you haven't heard it, our God is God. And we are the works of his hands. All creation bows before him and we must do the same. Our God is God. And Moses looked at the next generation and said, when you know and lay it to heart who he really is, you will know. Our God is God. And then the last thing he told them, let her see on your outline, verse 40, what to do in the days to come. What to do in the days to come. Israelites, you're about to go into the land. I'm about to die. Here's what you need to do. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes, his commandments that I'm commanding you today, that it may go well with you and with your children, and that you may prolong your days in the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. This is the way Israel was to carry out their knowing Keep my commandments and keep my statutes. And the way today we know that God is God is by keeping his commandments, whatever he's told us to do. Folks, don't just dismiss it. He's told us what to do in his, in his word. Don't just dismiss it and say, well, I, I, I know what it says, but I don't really think it's that big of a deal to him. Yes, it's a big deal to him. And we need to follow his commandments. But you know, I just got to say, as I, as I observe the culture in which we live, his statutes and his commandments in our day are not being kept. And we're no longer in the good land. His commandments are routinely ignored. They're marginalized. They're, they're basically routinely broken as, just, as if they're not true. And it's not going well with us. 
Nor is it going well with our children. Children today are afraid. They're in fear. They're in counseling much more than they were in previous generations. There's anxiety among our teenagers. Depression at an all-time high. Emotional support animals everywhere. I saw an emotional support ferret the other day. Had a ferret on her shoulder on the airplane. It's not going well with us. But look at what we're being taught. Being taught that the Bible's wrong. Being taught in textbooks and library books that things that go against God's truth. There's a class that's really popular right now on Sirius XM Radio. It's called Masterclass. And I was listening to it earlier this week, and, and, and it's just different experts just giving cultural advice. Not biblical advice, just cultural advice. And one of them said, uh, you've got to be optimistic. That's how you get through life. You've got to be optimistic. Optimism is like a muscle. The more you work it, the more you get of it. I thought, what? Yeah, what if I jump out of an airplane without a parachute? This isn't going to hurt. It's not going to hurt. It's not going to be optimistic. It's not going to hurt. Not, I'm optimistic. It's not going to hurt. And I can say that all the way, but truth hits me. And folks, we can have all these classes that we want, but we've got to know the truth. And we've got to live the truth. And we've got to speak the truth. And God has given us truth. And that's what Moses told the next generation. You're going to have to go by the statutes and the commands because right now in America, we're not living in the good land. But God says the good land is when you take my word and you do it. Okay, so there it is. Look at this picture on the screen. That is Mount Nebo. That is the exact location where Moses was giving this speech. Hands up. Long gray hair flowing, gray beard. He's looking into the promised land. That's the promised land in the distance. They're standing on Mount Nebo and they were all listening to him. He said, the land's before you. It's your choice. I told you what to do. It's up to you. And he left. I can imagine it was quiet among the people. You want to know what happened? Did they do what Moses said? Or not? Well, for the most part, this group is pretty good. You got occasional lapses of not believing the Lord, occasional lapses of idolatry, but for the most part, they listened. For the most part. But here was their mistake. The next generation left. After Moses spoke, Joshua took them into the land. They were okay, but their fatal flaw. They didn't teach it to their kids. And their kids were horrible. 
By the way, you remember the, the nation in the Middle East I told you about that arose that were despicable and horrible and turned from God and ungodless acts and sacrificed their kids and atrocious and abhorrent? Well, that nation was this generation's kids. They're terrible. In fact, by the time this next generation Moses spoke to, by the time their kids got to be adults, it was the book of Judges. And Judges opens by telling us, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord and did what was right in their own eyes. How did, how did Moses' crowd fail to teach their kids? And their kids grew up to not even know God. Well, it sounds a lot like our day, doesn't it? There arose a generation who thinks that truth is relative. There arose a generation that does what is right in their own eyes. Not what God said. I'm going to do what I think is right, what I want to do. That's us. That's our generation. And we wonder why we're not living the good life. Why aren't we in the good land? We haven't done what Moses stood there told us to do. Back in the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon, one Sunday morning, was preaching to his congregation. It was in England, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It's packed, thousands there. And he stood that Sunday morning, and here's what he said. He said, people, we cannot be traitors to the truth. We've got to stand for God's truth because if we're traitors to the truth, what's going to happen to the next generation? And the next generation? And the next generation? And the next generation? And now, look at godless England today. That's right. So what are we going to do? Are we going to obey what he says and teach truth to those behind us? Because a lot can change in just one generation. God, I want to thank you today for your word and thank you for speaking to us. God, it's sobering sometimes to think as we read the rest of history and what happened that your people stood and listened to Moses' fiery speech for 40 verses and did okay, but failed to pass on to generations what God Almighty had said until there finally arose that generation who didn't even know you. God, may you work in our hearts and lives so that we obey you. You're a loving father to us. I thank you for that. God, help us to follow the commands you've given us to know. And God, you will know that we know whenever we obey you. 
And so, Father, all those people today who are listening to me, whether it's here live or online, Lord, while all those areas of our lives that we're in disobedience to you, where you've plainly told us something and we just haven't done it, would you forgive us, but would you convict us? And would you bring us, even this morning, back into the good land to be obedient to you? In Jesus' name I pray.